I think it's one of the biggest mistakes we make as uh, you know, quote unquote, de developed nations is we think of ourselves as developed nations, but in fact, the nation should be developing all the time. We are, we should always be developing. Otherwise, you get left behind. Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Shoykat Chakrabarty, former campaign manager and chief of staff to Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio Cortez, co founder of Justice Democrats in the U.S., and currently president of New Consensus, a think tank focused on a number of issues, including developing the Green New Deal. There's a big sigh of relief, obviously, across our country and around the world, no doubt, as President Biden has officially been sworn into office. Trump was not only a threat to our national economic interests in Canada, he was more dangerously a threat to ideas of democracy and pluralism that the United States should be elevating, not undermining. And, of course, there's renewed optimism that the United States will now be a stronger partner than ever before in meeting the challenge of climate change. To that end, Shoykat is well-placed to discuss just how optimistic we should be and what comes next for the Green New Deal and more progressive politics in America. Shoykat, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is exciting. We as Canadians watched with some sense of horror, I think, at what took place on Capitol Hill. And we've watched in horror for, I want to say, years now at the fringe voices that have made their way into the Oval Office and the elevation of the dark corners of the Internet in American discourse. Obviously, I was certainly pleased to see the outcome and that we have a Biden administration. I'm even more pleased to see the results in Georgia. Still 70 million people voted for Donald Trump. Have you been thinking through what comes next? And, and I don't know if the events on Capitol Hill should affect what comes next. Yeah, you know, I think there's there's um, two major parts that I think about the events on Capitol Hill. You know, one is that I think it's really dangerous not to... Um, kind of immediately denounce and convict and have a, a cross political denouncement of this, which I, I think there's some momentum going on. I mean, even Mitch McConnell uh, today uh, just said that, you know, the president provoked these attacks and, um, and is indicating that he should be held accountable because it sets such a terrible precedent. You know, like if you, if you look back to the history of coup attempts um, in any country, I often look at 1930s histories because right now I sort of feel like we're going through the 1930s again um, and we're making a lot of the same mistakes. But it's it's almost always a bad idea to um, kind of give in to any of the demands for for folks who are who are uh, setting this precedent of like using in you know completely untrue things to try to overthrow democracy. It just sets a precedent. That next time, why wouldn't you try it again if you lose? Um, so that's one part, you know, we should, we should absolutely get rid of Trump and, and I don't know how the Republican party, I don't know where they go from here, honestly, like uh, they have a very strong base of, of, uh, political leaders who absolutely are, have bought into like the, you know, false election narrative. It's a lot like the, uh, I don't know how much, um, folks on this podcast, I know, but, you know, like in the 1930s, it was a stab in the back myth that led to kind of the rise of the Nazi party. It was a whole uh, myth around the social Democrats uh, betrayed the Germans and that's why they lost World War One. And like a, basically like 30 or 40 percent of the population like believe this, you know, kind of the same as as we have with Trump right now. And it's hard to know where the, the Republicans that represent that part of the population go from here. You know, the responsible thing I think to do would be to join together and, and just say like, all right, you know, we were wrong, we're lying, we need to accept democracy. Um, and, and I think that would do a lot to cut that, you know, to, to really cut that. But 
Um, but they're playing with fire, you know, they're just go, they're going along with it. And, and uh, I don't know where the GOP goes. Second bit, though, and I think this is a, in some ways a more important bit is Biden. I, I think there's a, there's examples of how this stuff go really wrong. If you look at the 1930s and you can see that in, in 1930s Japan, you can see it in 1930s Germany, where kind of uh, far right nationalistic groups t- took hold and, and tried to uh, remove kind of the the burgeoning liberalism that was taking hold around the world. And then there's 1930s America, you know, where we kind of managed to quell the uh, far right nationalistic um, anti-democratic forces that were also taking hold here. You know, Nazi party was having massive uh, rallies in the Madison Square Garden. The the photos are like haunting if you look at them. And uh, full like 20, 30% of the country was willing to go along with sort of a dictator, um, fascist over, you know, uprising in America. And FDR did have a playbook for how to combat that in a very divided time. Um, and, and that's going to be the task that's ahead of Biden. You know, uh, he's going to have to do so much and do it well and actually execute um, in a way that uplifts so many people in this country who are really, really hurting that, that it, it's, it's a force greater than the force on the opposing side that's trying to take the current pain and the current situation we're in and turn it into chaos and uh, and the fall of our democracy. It's an interesting parallel because when you reference FDR in the 30s and the need to quell that white supremacy, that, that need to, to quell the in our current context, these fringe voices who are undermining democracy, and push them back to the fringe, as it were, that FDR one approach was to lift people up through the New Deal. And there's an active conversation in the States where Biden in his platform said he believes the Green New Deal is a crucial framework for meeting the climate challenges we face. You had a hand in the original Green New Deal motion, but you've also said it wasn't originally a climate thing at all. We really think of it as a how do you change the entire economy thing? What motivates this goal to change the entire economy? What motivates the the Green New Deal, given that parallel to the 1930s? Yeah, it, I mean, that's the thing. I actually didn't think that was uh, g- going to be a controversial thing I said. But when I said it, a lot of right-wingers lash onto it and be like, see, we told you guys, it's the socialists are just trying to take over. But uh, New Deal is right in the name of the Green New Deal. You know, the 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 motivation in a lot of ways is that a lot of people are hurting in this country. And we think that the two problems of the country being very polarized and the country being, uh, um, you know, it seems like there's like two parts of the country that just don't totally understand each other at all, um, is very much linked with the way our uh, wealth has like been accumulated in our country and certain social groups, not necessarily always doing terribly on their own, but falling further and further back, you know? And, and, and so, so we have this problem where wages have stagnated for decades for a large part of the world, you know, or a large part of America um, after having a period of uh, extreme wage growth for decades, right? Uh, life expectancy is falling. And, you know, if life expectancy overall is falling, but if you look at any of the stats for the bottom 90%, it's way worse than you think it is, you know? Um, so the way of life for a whole lot of folks in this country is just moving backwards. People look at the future and they see that our children, you know, are not going to have a better life than we did, which is kind of the, the sacred contract in some ways of a con- for a country like America is, you know, 
we set up the system where whatever else we promise you that the next generation will do better than, than you, you know, and that's why people buy into it. So when that contract goes out the window, um, things just go crazy. People start, uh, I think it's way, people get polarized, especially when there's one part of the country that thinks things are going well and the other part that doesn't. And then there's all the cultural battles start to come into play. You know, the, the people on the coast have a certain view of what, uh, folks in the middle of the country look and think and act like and uh, and can't understand them and, and vice versa. So all I have to say is like the original motivation for the Green New Deal was a uplift millions and millions of people, you know, actually get wages going back, building in America again, you know, creating a uh, an economy where we feel like there's something to look forward to, you know, where we feel like we're roaring, where we get that, that sense. That in my mind, it's the sense that uh, you know, my dad had when he immigrated to this country in the 1970s, where he was coming to America because he knew he had 20 bucks in his pocket, you know, but that didn't matter. He knew this is a place you come uh, to have a better future for you and your kids. Um, so, so that is a big part of, you know, where that entire thing comes from. And through that, um, healing the nation's kind of more existential social divides <laughs> that have really become such a huge problem. So relevant in the context of, of climate action, too. In, in the Canadian context, there oftentimes is quite significant polarization where a certain segment of our society, and I would count myself among them, says we need significant climate action as a matter of our international obligations, our moral obligations, our intergenerational obligations. But rightly, other individuals in other parts of the country say, so you're going to take my job mm -hmm. away? And to address that kind of disruption, you do need an approach that isn't only focused on reducing emissions. You do need an approach that is also focused on lifting people up and, and helping people through what is going to be an inevitable disruption yeah. for many. And I and I took that to be, yes, it's about climate, but it's also about supporting people through that, that kind well, of disruption. And it's not, and it's not like, a, you know, I think sometimes there's a way to think about the, that this stuff gets framed where it's like, we have a moral obligation to do the climate stuff. And, and I agree, we do have a moral obligation to, you know, tackle climate change if we want to have any hope for a future. Um, but it's also just, that's the next upgrade to the economy. You know, if we were, we're kind of in like, you know, at some point America was running on whale oil, right? And petroleum showed up and we could have made the choice to stick with whale oil, right? While the rest of the world is uh, deciding petroleum is a more efficient way, but we did it. We decided to upgrade our economy and our energy system to use this new, better technology. And that's just the case with all the things you have to build um, to create a renewable energy society or, or a sustainable society. You know, electric cars are just better <laughs> than gas vehicles. Having less pollution is better for your cities and for everyone's health. Um, solar power, all this stuff is cheaper, you know, and it's, so it's just, uh, it's been communicated, I think for a long time as this trade-off where some people have to lose while other people gain. Um, and, and there's actually, there is a way to, that we would do this where it would work out that way. If we just did it the normal status quo way where, um, we're just killing off all the coal jobs, places are getting deindustrialized and accumulating all the new wealth from this new technology and this new stuff in these very, concentrated urban pockets, uh, that would be a way to do it where we do upgrade, you know, our energy systems, but we don't actually spread the wealth in a way that, that uplifts everybody. But, and so a lot of what the Green New Deal talks about is how do we, how do we do that upgrade of our society in a way that benefits the vast 
majority of people in society, right? And it should. That's that's what happened every other time we've upgraded our society. That's what happened when we built the interstate highway system or uh, the New Deal or World War II. You know, we built steel production and, and cars and built all this stuff during World War II that basically created the wealth for the next generation of Americans. The Green Deal was really about talking about all this stuff as a society-wide inclusive project to improve all of our lives rather than, you know, just a battle on climate change and yeah, and trying to accept that there's going to be some losers because there doesn't have to be, there shouldn't be. And I think President-elect Biden identified that strand of thought when he said very simply that this is about jobs as much as it is about climate action for our kids. And so it, it can be both. And yet when we look at that question of polarization, I mean, Biden also just canceled or will will cancel shortly the Keystone pipeline. And that has caused some consternation, largely in conservative circles. But so we have Premier of Alberta, who was quite upset by it as an example. Uh, a columnist here in Canada, Adam Radwanski, wrote that we could position Canada for a lot more frustration with increasingly adversarial con- continental relations on this particular subject or open the door to new economic opp- opportunities. And it, I personally obviously see many reasons for renewed cooperation as between the states and Canada, including on climate action. I wonder if in your work through New Consensus, if you've thought through what some of that cooperation might look like. Yeah, you know, I think I think there's, so first of all, I completely agree that I think the first approaches, the things that should happen first should be building the, the new stuff, you know? Um, it's way, it's easier, and I know why there, there's often a political tactic to go after stopping projects and stopping, you know, uh, drilling. And, uh, and that makes a lot of sense, especially when you're, when it's like the, the activist, uh, climate movement, you know, trying to wield whatever power it's got, that's, that's all you can manage to do is, is stop some stuff. But now that we have actual power in the white house to do new things, let's focus on that. And I think that, uh, and I think there's a whole lot of places, um, where Canada and America can uh, can coordinate on this. I mean, basically, the way I think about something like Green New Deal is America is only responsible for about 15% of emissions, right? And our role in this whole thing globally is going to be um, ideally being the place where we're able to, to kind of um, create and nurture the new technologies and new industries and new new um, processes um, that we can because uh, we have the the financial capacity to do that and the labor capacity to do that and then use our market to build that stuff up and then bring it out to the rest of the world. But when we combine that that market and that labor potential with you guys, you know, our allies in the north, that just increases it so much more. I, I was on this call recently with. Um, some folks from Japan, you know, uh, who work in um, uh, kind of the industrial planning sector of Japan's government in METI. And they were talking about how, you know, Japan invented all these new solar panels, uh, like the technology for solar panels, but they just couldn't compete with China because China's got this huge market and they can just mass produce stuff. And, you know, it's it's just inevitable that China will take over the global market. Um, and, And my answer to that was like, that doesn't have to be the case. I mean, if you look at America plus Canada plus Japan plus all you know the democratic allies around the world, 
our total capacity to build and produce and buy is massive right now. We're in the best place we've ever been in the history of this world. There should be nothing we can't accomplish, um, especially if you look at what we accomplished in the past, right? What we managed to pull off in World War II. So that's that's kind of mindset, I think, to use rather than this kind of helplessness that you know we are powerless in the face of authoritarian governments that are able to mobilize their economies like China. Um, and, and for what it's worth, you know, I'm not saying like, we necessarily need to go again to this like war footing with China. I think it's great if we have a, a, a green energy arms race with China and we're both trying to produce the, you know, the most uh, green energy stuff uh, for the future. But I do think like, you know, we're obviously going to be working with our allies to do this. And, and the more that we have cross-global cooperation, um, especially with allies who understand that there's a need to, you know, to uplift everybody's lives. Because so, so often, I think, uh, at least over here from our perspective, you know, many of the, the multilateral trade deals that get made get made with corporations in, this, in the front seat who are trying to push wages down and trying to just get extract more profits. But we don't have to do it that way. We can have global trade deals that are trying to push wages up, trying to you know, increase our standards of living, trying to increase what we're producing. And when you look at putting some practical examples in the window of what a Green New Deal can accomplish, in the Canadian context, we don't use the language of Green New Deal, at least as a, as a liberal government. But in the most recent fall economic statement, there was 70 to $100 billion set aside for the next three years for a Building Back Better recovery fund. And the language used there is working towards a recovery that is inclusive, sustainable, and creates good jobs for Canadians. The stimulus will help us grow out of this recession towards an economy that is greener, more innovative, more inclusive, and more competitive. In the throne speech, which was in September, we committed to create a million jobs with climate action as the cornerstone to that plan. It sounds very similar to a Green New Deal in the way that it is framed. So when we look at putting examples in the window of of practical climate action and and action that would be held out as, here's what a Green New Deal could be, we're going to spend 70 to $100 billion over the next three years and with the cooperation in mind. Do you have a sense of, again, in relation to that, your work with with New Consensus perhaps or, or beyond, what a few examples might be, a big examples might be of what should come next and in our immediate future. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I think like the the best exa- the best stuff to put forward um, first, uh, you know, prioritize are going to be the things that create the high wage jobs. First. Because the, the reality is, um, and I can give some concrete examples, but you know, the reality is actually converting our energy systems uh, from being based on, you know, oil and gas to, to being based on clean energy sources. It's going to be a long-term plan. It's going to take, you know, probably at least ten years, I and mean, that's like an aggressive timeline. People think it's going to take a lot longer, um, but I think we can do quite a bit in ten years, uh, and and more than people think we can. And to so to do that, you've got to build up political capital and stuff is working. That's good for you. That's going to uh, that's actually building jobs. Um, so I would start uh, honestly with building electric car factories in America. It starts popping them down. We did a paper recently. About using our our central bank, the Fed, which traditionally, which in the past used to be way more of a development bank um, for America, but recently has become just kind of uh, you know the, the people who set the interest rates in the country. Um, but we we did a paper about how, having them go back to a development banking focus and like you know how much it would take to start investing in building factories in places like. Uh, you know, deindustrialized Wisconsin, deindustrialized Tennessee, these places that used to have a 
a burgeoning manufacturing based industry where you know the manufacturing got killed uh partly because of some trade deals we did uh with with you all but also because of uh competition from china and automation and this the inability for us to keep up with kind of global economy that moved, uh, moved ahead um so let's just put the factories back there you know and, and actually build the cars that we knew we need to build uh not just for america but for a global electric vehicle demand and if you look at china right now that's exactly what they're doing they're basically they've been for the last decade essentially uh funding 30 to 40 percent of their electric vehicle manufacturing and they've surpassed every country in the world in ev production and they're doing it in a way where it's not just picking winners and losers the you know if anything the chinese ev market right now has too many ev startups they're building too many companies are building too many new factories and that's like they think it might be a problem because they're having trouble scaling uh, but we could, you know, it's better to be in that position, <laughs> the position we're in right now, but we can't even get, uh, you know, we have to beg for to build one, you know, new company, new, uh, car factory. Um, but also, you know, we could, we, I think another jobs, uh, you know, highway jobs producing thing is, uh, uh, the plan to retrofit buildings to become, uh, more energy efficient. That's, you know, a massive, massive program. If you want to take that on, there'll be millions of jobs. Uh, requires so much training, and also it'll it'll create the uh, demand necessary to to build up production of solar, you know, rooftop solar, uh, batteries, all that. So those kinds of like taking these industries that we know we need to build, and then investing in them through kind of our our central bank, which is which is the way countries have always developed. You know, that it's if you look at a country like South Korea that was extremely poor um, post uh, post World War II. Uh, that has managed to now become one of the richest countries in the world, they'd kind of made intentional investments in industries that they knew were high-wage industries um, over the course of 20, 30, 40 years. You know, Toyota in Japan is another example where they they, they spent 40 years be- uh, trying to build a Toyota in Japan before they ever exported a car successfully. You know, and so uh, it's it's this mind you you have to take this mindset of actually trying to take these industries, build them up. Um, create the jobs, which creates the political capital to give you the 10, 20, 30 years to build them up. And, um, and then just, you know, execute and iterate. It's, it's not going to be a one shot approach. It's not going to be one stimulus bill. That's why you need institutions that are focused on continually investing in America and in Canada. You know, I, I think it's one of the biggest mistakes we make as. Uh, you know, quote unquote, develop, developed nations is we think of ourselves as developed nations, but in fact, a nation should be developing all the time. We are, we should always be developing. Otherwise, you get left behind. People in business actually understand that, you know. So, in the in the Canadian context, I mentioned the seventy to one hundred billion dollar Building Back Better fund. We've invested certainly in in this recent fall economic statement some more dollars for retrofits previously we've invested in ev charging infrastructure i I would say the scale needs to be increased as it relates to ambition but we've always viewed these policies as complementary to pricing pollution in the green new deal context though it has there's not really been an emphasis on pricing pollution in the same way as that more uh that that you've really described it in a, as an industrial strategy and industrial policy, mm-hmm. is there a role do you see in a complementary way to say yes, we're still going to invest in our EV car factories? Yes, we're still going to invest in a, a, a massive national retrofit program, but we are also going to price pollution. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, but but I, but the reason the Green New Deal didn't em- emphasize it is twofold. One, um, that had been the emphasis of of kind of climate politics sure. in America for a long time. And two, I think that's step two. You know, I think uh, if you start too aggressively with pricing pollution and kind of the punitive measures on on the stuff, um, the result is going to be some of the pain and hardship. Um, and also the only people, the only actors that are really going to be able to, to compete in that kind of a market will be the big dogs. You know, it'll be the large corporations. You're kind of cutting out the feet from, um, this potential new kind of blossoming of entrepreneurism, um, before you even get started. And so, you know, I would say like the way to introduce a price on pollution is to first do the industrial investment, get companies going get uh, the economy going, the green energy economy going, make it so that um, private investors are starting to invest into this economy because there's so much government investment, right? So you're, you're crowding in investment. This is sort of the way, if you look at uh, even like Silicon Valley, any major industry, often there's a lot of upfront government investment before private investors come in because it's too risky for private investors, you know, until the government has, has kind of cleared, you know, made it a obvious bet for them. And then you use, I think the right place to use a price on pollution is when um, there is an obvious alternative to polluting. And the, and the reason these companies aren't moving off their polluting uh, practices is just laziness. You know, it's just status quo, you know, and, and also they're, they, you know, they're still making a, a little bit more money doing this versus the other. And they clearly have the capacity to change if they wanted to put the work in. Um, then yes, the price on pollution does, I think, make a lot of sense for that last mile problem. But I think it's, uh, I think it could be both, um, both from a sheer just policy standpoint, regressive, you know, like it, it could hurt the small, uh, the, the smaller companies, but also consumers upfront, but also from political capital standpoint, I think uh, a bad upfront idea because you don't want to start with punishment it, it, that makes it a polarizing issue to do anything here. It has been polarizing at times, I'll tell you, in the Canadian context, but the argument, I think, has largely won the day. It didn't previously. So we had a, a liberal leader, Stefan Dion, who effectively ran on carbon pricing, and he lost. And commentators will point to that policy as one of the reasons he lost. And so we did lose a decade of climate action in a really serious way because of uh, because of that that loss and, and, a, and a conservative majority government. Not not to say they didn't take any action, but not certainly the ambitious action that I would have liked to have seen. At the same time, if we can manage the politics of pricing carbon and pricing pollution, I, I do think that they end up being quite complementary, acknowledging the regressive nature if you don't pay the money back to households directly, which is thankfully how we've designed the policy as effectively revenue neutral, delivering the dollars back, which has helped the politics at the same time. Yeah. But I do take the point that as you drive consumers to consider alternatives, you also need to make sure that where the alternatives don't yet exist by reason of technology and and underdeveloped technology that governments then are stepping in. And we, I think, have maybe taken a page in some ways out out of some of what you said. We do have a new infrastructure bank that is spending considerable dollars developing effectively to invest money in climate action, which is significant and more arm's length than, than spending out of the from the finance minister through the regular budget process but we we are also as i say going to see significant spending so i I do hope that there are more reasons to cooperate going forward and that lessons learned on both sides of the border to see what's working here and what what could be picked up there we've recently had conversations about tax credits for 
companies investing in alternative technologies, including carbon capture and storage. And that's something that obviously has taken off a little bit in the United States. So I think there will be continued lessons learned. And I'm I'm quite optimistic, actually, when I see Biden's win and I see what happened with the Senate, that there will now be a place where we're going to have a conversation in Canada about keeping up with you guys instead of, well, we get a kind of a free pass because we're taking significant climate action and, and look, the, the states is way further behind. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a, a great place to be <laughs> if every country starts um you know, getting worried that that they're going to be left behind if they don't take climate action, and that's exactly where we want to be. You know, uh, on the um, on the like financing part, you know, a lot of like this is something I it's it's not really clear from just like the policy language, and and if you just read it, read the Green New Deal stuff. But a lot of what we were trying to push in the Green New Deal, and why whenever you see um, you know me talking about it, also AOC talking about it, often there's a reference to World War II, is also this idea of how to get political leadership in this mindset of urgency and kind of a, a non-ideological approach, just like getting the job done. And so this goes back to kind of the carbon pricing question in a, in a way in that, um, yes, we should finance companies and they might not have help, but there's also this mindset of just like, if you're in government and if you're the, you know, the leader of a country like Canada or America, you should be constantly trying to figure out why, like, why aren't these companies changing? You know, what's, what's, uh, what's keeping them back? Um, and how do I make sure it happens? And like in World War II, you saw this constantly where like the government started, you know, the, the process started in America where the government was handing out massive contracts to build planes and uh, ships. And um, many car companies and, and companies that had the factories to do this just like weren't doing it. You know, there's all this money on the uh, on there and they went in and they did everything possible. They they built factories for them and then leased them out to them, you know, but it wasn't just like government handouts. Like it was an active interest in figuring out how this stuff works, trying to manage the process, not micromanaging every detail, but managing at a level where you're actually getting the results and being focused on the results at the end of the table. So, you know, if, if I'm glad you guys are doing the carbon pricing thing, if you tell me in a year, this is actually working really great, then our, our stance should be, Great, let's do that here then, right? <laughs> like it shouldn't there should be no ideology here. There's a lesson where I hope the states learns from Canada in some ways to say this can work in a in a somewhat polarized environment with different provinces that have different industries and it can be challenging politics in some places, but overall, especially when you have a revenue neutral model that delivers dollars back to households, yeah. then low and middle income households are largely better off in some cases, at, at least made whole. And it starts to change consumer behavior in a significant way. And we'll see increased change of behavior as the price continues to increase. But uh, you know, we will learn from you, but I think seeing the politics work themselves out, I hope that you know when we talk about the EU getting their act together on border carbon adjustments, that we, we have that same active conversation in North America on, on pricing. But um, my, my last question on Green New Deal, because it, 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 you know, it's brought to my attention through constituents and, and advocacy mm -hmm. to say you should be pushing for the very same things in Canada. And in large measure, I mentioned the language can be quite similar. Mm -hmm. But one, one area we've not gone, except recently we now are committed to creating a million jobs with climate action as the cornerstone. But there's a challenge in when we talk about winners and losers, there are certain individuals who are going to be later in their life. It's not going to be so easy to train them for something new. And we want to make sure that there are supports in place. And have you, have you thought through as it relates to the Green New Deal? Two things, I guess. One is the job guarantee, which we can, I talked to Joe Stiglitz and we can guarantee some jobs, but not all jobs. And so we could probably guarantee everyone 
an opportunity to go tree planting this summer, but it's hard to think through what a job guarantee means in, in, in every context. And so I wonder what you've thought through as far as that aspect of the plan. And two, for those who are not going to be in a position to easily reskill for the new clean economy, what we what are the policy measures that we need to bring to bear in terms of basic income or otherwise to support them through the rest of their lives? Yeah, you know, I basically think of it as like uh, you do everything possible to make the obvious answer be you know reskilled. Like there's going to be so many jobs that will not just have to match your previous pay, but pay more. You know, ideally like two x more, which should not be like a a complicated thing because when you when a country upgrades its economy, it becomes more productive. It should be generating more wealth, and so there should be the ability to create higher wage jobs, right? And the, so the the alternative to a coal miner making fifty an hour in West Virginia should be you know a solar panel manufacturing or clean clean steel manufacturing at seventy five an hour or a hundred an hour, right? Um, and so, but then of course, I think there will be some number of people who are probably too late in their career you know, won't be able to um, transfer into a new job. And then I think you should look into things like uh, providing early retirement and early pensions, right? Um, and uh, I think it's it, it gets, people get scared when you say something like basic income because they have this idea of people just living on the government money and and uh, and whatever, which I think is obviously, is just a, that's just a political tool that the right uses to try to... Um, Kind of, kind of get scare rid of people away from income security and dignity. Yeah, any, <laughs> any sort of social insurance program, right? Uh, I mean, there and there is like this basic problem in the U.S. at least, which is that we have a terrible, well, you know, social safety net. We it's it's not just that we don't spend enough on it; it's just administered poorly. There's all kinds of cracks. We've figured out the most complicated ways to make people have to even get these benefits. You know, that's the main problem with not doing universal programs in a lot of ways is you have to jump through like a thousand, uh, you know, hoops to get anything. And we're seeing that thinking actually come into some of our, our, our vaccine distribution, which uh, it's a whole other story, but it's just like, it's just why, why design, you know, don't let the, don't let, you know, perfect be the enemy of the good, just do something that's good and let everyone access it. So, yeah, I think on the, in, in America, at least on the left, I think there's been a, an emphasis on improving our social safety net for a long time. I think Biden is, is really focused on that. And I think that's good. And I hope a lot of that occurs and um, we'll ideally be able to, to take care of some of the folks who can't transition into a new economy. Um, and we should look into more. I think we, we've, I don't think it would be bad to just, you know, give people the wage they're getting right now to be able to retire if the alternative is a higher wage, right? So, right. so then you get to choose keeping what you have. And on the jobs and on the job guarantee piece, it's really the emphasis there, which makes sense to me then, is on reskilling and making sure that there are reskilling and training programs that are freely available to folks as the, as they have to move away from one kind of work and move to another kind of work. And that the emphasis is on not supporting specific kinds of work, but supporting workers. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's uh, it, that's exactly right, right? Like the emphasis is really on full employment. Like, can we get to a place where everybody in the country is employed, which for a long time, was an economic scare word in America because there was this assumption that if everyone's employed, we'll have massive inflation and, and it'll be bad. Uh, and luckily, that thinking is kind of going away from DC. And uh, and I think it'd be great to live in a society where we can get to full employment. And so, the, yeah, so in the Green New Deal, you know, what we were talking about with the uh, jobs guarantee was really about um, stopgap measures to getting to a place where the economy is providing enough jobs to create 
full employment uh, for everybody. So anyone who wants a job can, uh, a good high wage job can get one. Well, let's talk about then democratic circles because you are a founder of Justice Democrats and you've seen some success, not as much success I'm sure as you would like, but initial success through AOC and then more success recently, I would say. Where are those efforts in terms of taking a party that is a huge tent party? We, we have a big tent party system first past the post here in Canada too, but we have a multi-party system that contrasts it with your two-party system. So how, how are those efforts through Justice Dems or, or other organizations to build uh, a democratic party and, and to improve the circles, those democratic circles uh, in an approach that you want to see and that your colleagues want to see going forward? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, a lot of, I, I guess a lot of like my lessons from being in Congress and, and working with politicians is, uh, and what kind of inspired just the Democrats is there's this huge disconnect in the US at least between things that when you ask people if, they, if it would be good if this stuff existed, they want it. But we're just unable as a society to deliver those things. You know, social safety stuff is an obvious one, but also whenever we've talked to or polled on like investing in industry to create more high wage jobs, you know, why not? You know, nobody, nobody's against that. And so a lot of the, the kind of uh, uh, lack of action is just really just comes from this incentive system in our government for most politicians to go in there and not do very much. We've got so many people who got in there in like 19, 80, you know, and they were just, they've just been sitting around for, for decades. Um, and they still think the world is 1980. You know, they, they, I kid you not, like you can show them all the stats you want in the world. Um, and they just think that like college is still like, you know, $15 a year for tuition. You can work a part-time job at McDonald's and make your way through and houses just cost like, and cause all of them have become millionaires while they're in Congress too. So they don't, they have no idea what the real world is like anymore. And so the purpose of justice Democrats to a large extent was just Take, you know, it's kind of obvious things like take things that most Americans want and want to see happen, make those your campaign issues, and then threaten the power of people in office right now, especially Democrats, um, because we we kind of, uh, you know, the Republican Party is kind of a little far gone here, but uh, at least Democratic Party seems like maybe they might do something and get that to spur action. Um, and I'd say, you know, the success there has been that I do think we've, we've managed to get the Democratic Party reoriented towards action. They, for so long, the Democrats were just responding to pressure from the right wing, uh, which is what created the last several decades of essentially right wing policies from the Democratic Party. And they're, and they're focused so much on balancing the budget and, uh, and kind of deficit-minded uh, politics in a, in a time when we're just not actually doing enough to advance our economy. But turns out having pressure from from uh, the other side, <laughs> it's, it's a good thing to counteract that. Um, and, you know, speaking, talk about the Green New Deal stuff, just kind of saw this up front. Like we introduced the Green New Deal um, in March through AOC's office. And a lot of the Democratic presidential candidates who were running in the primary at the time signed on, released versions of it for their plan that were like, you know, massive. Inslee had a $9 trillion plan. Bernie had, I think, like a $12 trillion plan. And, uh, and so you had Joe Biden who was supposed to be the moderate, uh, who, um, you know, had, I think, never campaigned on climate change stuff in his life. Even Bernie Sanders in 2016, his climate change stuff in 2016 was, uh, I think, a carbon tax, and, and that's about it. Suddenly, he felt pressure to have to present something, right? And so he presented this $2 trillion plan that was essentially build back better. Um, and now we're actually seeing that that might happen, right? So that's, I think, 
um, the kind of thing that that's possible because it turns out politicians in a democracy are still, you know, they, they react to what people are demanding of them. That's the great thing about living in a democracy. Right. Um, and, and so the strategy now, I think, uh, you know, I'm not day-to-day involved with Justice Democrats anymore. Other folks are running it, and they've have had a, a lot of success this year uh, after success in 2018. Um, and there's enough Justice Democratic congressional candidates in there who are not just, it's not just like an ideology thing. They're just in there wanting to actually see some change happen, right? And that kind of lights a fire <laughs> under, under everybody's uh, collective bottoms to do something. And so they're planning to, you know, continue doing primary elections, uh, trying to pressure more Democrats, because it turns out actually coming after people's, you know, seats in American politics, at least, is like the real way to get them to act. Well, primaries matter so very much. And in American politics, where money has great influence, it can be a challenge, I'm sure. But there is still a truth in Canada and the United States, which is not that many people join political parties mm-hmm. or participate in nomination we, nomination processes, we would call them Canada, or primary processes, as you describe them. And so you, on Twitter, uh, I caught the other day, you had mentioned, or you referenced the fact that the GOP has 35 million people, 51 or 51% who are still more Trumpers, I suppose, is about 18 million people. There are 250 million people voting age in America. So these 18 million people who are able to take over a party effectively, or at least control the apparatus of that party, can then take over the country mm-hmm. in, a, in a dual party system. And in the Canadian context, you look at that push from the left, as it were, we have a new Democratic Party that can provide that push to some extent at times, depending upon their effectiveness. Sometimes they're effective, sometimes they're not. The Green Party, similarly, more nascent and much smaller, but tries to push particularly on climate and and some other issues as well. I actually think when you look at the nomination primary processes, the Liberal Party in Canada, this is my view and, and one of my interests in getting involved, I ascribe to liberal values overall. I saw leaders that I could see myself in, in Pearson and Trudeau Sr. and others. And I looked at it and said, well, how can I make the biggest difference? And there was an open primary, open nomination process. And I look at it now, now that I'm in office for the last five years, and I see, you know, if you had an organization like Justice Dems here in Canada that was really pushing for progressive candidates, maybe younger candidates, people of different, more diverse backgrounds, but all united in a sense of we want to move forward on better better pro- progress for equality, better progress for, for climate and more, you're going to see the party change much faster than just getting pushed by another party that is competing in an election. You're, you're, you're going to rebuild the party in a serious way from the bottom up, from the grassroots up. And with recognition that very few people join political parties. So you can have a huge impact if you mobilize on that front. Yeah, you know, and I, I, I actually, you know, I'm, I'm not sure because we, we have a, a two-party system here, right? And I, I, I do think like if we had a multi-party system and I was going back and started just as Democrats all over again, we might've done it as a new party, you know? And, uh, and just because like, it's so hard and this might be where it's a little different in Canada than America. It's so hard here to um, to to make that initial uh, break. I think especially now that the party has changed so much. I mean, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing, right? We're like, because yeah. she won, she got influence. And also because she won in this, uh, like she became the most famous member of the Democratic Party after Nancy Pelosi, you know, um, kind of overnight. 
um, she was able to use that to to really advance the Democratic Party, I think. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's like, I say it, the context matters in terms of where the parties are, you know? So, so if like, sure. if the Democratic, so if AOC had won and we had a system where it was possible to have a third party, um, uh, I could very easily have seen if she had gotten the same amount of attention as like any random House member winning here, that probably she couldn't do anything with that. She couldn't have any influence with the party and, and move it. Um, I think in Canada, you guys are have, uh, at least from the outside, it seems like a slightly more functional democracy where your parties are more responsive to your, uh, to people. And, uh, and, you know, you still have a, a liberal party that's, that's trying to, to do something and like trying to advance itself and you're putting out a lack of money helps a lack of, so yeah. I played baseball in my last year of school with uh, colleagues from the States. One had worked for Obama, a low level campaigner in Mississippi. The other had done the same in Colorado. And I was a pitcher. The guy from Mississippi was a catcher and the other guy was a pitcher as well. And we we're traveling around the UK playing baseball for some reason. And we, uh, we would talk about politics and, their involvement, my interest in getting involved in politics. And when I explained to them that if I were to get involved in politics, when I got back, if I got involved as a candidate, well, it'd be a $100,000 Canadian limit in my district. They straight laughed at me for like 10 minutes. So I think, I don't think, I don't know how much of a plausible conversation it is in the United States, this notion of campaign finance reform, but individual donors in Canada contribute 1600 bucks. You know, that's the max. There are no corporate donations. There are no union donations. We have some issues and pretty tight rules around third-party advertising as well. The way the Supreme Court has reacted through Citizens United, I think it's a tragedy really for democracy, but really hard to fight back against that potentially. I don't know. But that, that I think, is one, it's not the only difference, but it's one huge difference with our politics versus yours. Yeah, I think the money is a big factor. The other thing is, I think parties in Canada... Um, mean something a bit more than they they do here you know i think uh the fact because of our two-party system both of the parties um like you get so many democrats that don't even run as democrats you know because it's not really clear what democrats stand for we don't have a national message we don't we actively don't run national campaigns um right so i think it's it's sort of easier um in canada to to join a party like it's kind of understood that you should join the party try to affect what the party stands for right um whereas that's not really uh like it was it was seen as bad that aoc is trying to do that you know that aoc is trying to find what democrats stand for elsewhere um and and she got so much crap for it <laughs> but um and but uh and that's sort of like what we we're trying you know just the democrats approach to some extent is like at the end of the day um, the Democratic Party, if it's in power, is affecting the lives of everyone in this country. So let's not kid ourselves and say, you know, we should just be uh, concerned with the interests of whatever district that you want in. Um, this is this should be a national movement. We should actually be doing things at a national scale. So you help run AOC's campaign. You help found Justice Democrats. You then were chief of staff to AOC and then moved over to New Consensus to really push forward the Green New Deal what comes next for you and then what comes next for AOC and and the progressive movement in that democratic party? Do we start seeing folks run in Senate races, more national facing campaigns? Uh, But, but what comes next for for you and and for those around you that you want to see in positions of influence? Yeah. I mean, so right now uh, what I'm focused on a lot is 
we've been we've been working a lot on trying to put forward sort of concrete plans for how Biden could do Build Back Better. You know, in all the different scenarios, if he wants to work with Congress. Um, uh, this is how he could do it. And you know, if Congress is compliant, if he, what can he do if Congress is, doesn't comply, you know, how much of the plan can get done with, through the Fed? Uh, basically, just putting out plans that kind of show that there's no real reason he shouldn't do this stuff if he ever gets any cold feet and trying to give political capital to uh, the Democratic Party in power right now to uh, go through with all these big promises that, that they've made. And so I'm hoping that is influential. You know, I hope that the first 100 days of Biden's presidency, we see a lot of action. Um, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I think he's talking in pretty large, grand terms, uh, which is good. Um, I think he's also taking an approach of presenting tons of ideas all up front, all at once, which I think is the right thing to do. If you look at FDR's first 100 days, that's the, the way he approached it too, was just, you know, don't do this one thing and then the next. Um, that's the inside strategy. Just go to the people, try to convince people we want to do this and, and get it happen. You know, the part that I'm a little less optimistic on, but I'm not sure, is I think he's he's combined this with a, a political strategy that's still very insider focused. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I do hope that, you know, maybe the GOP is so destroyed that some number of them are going to come over and work with Biden and do this stuff. And that'd be great. Um, but, uh, but, you know, for the last several decades, the, the Republican Party has been hell bent on just obstructionism, and um, and very openly so. So I, I hope he's not being naive on that. Um, but but that yeah, so that's why I want to focus on at least while this stuff is going on. Um, and I think the the Justice Democrats who have come into power through 2018 through 2020, they're going to have a very significant role to play. Um, as now actual negotiators at the table, because the House Democrats here have a, a pretty slim majority um, that's smaller than the majority than the number of Justice Democrats in office. So they have real political power um, to try to determine. You know, I, I think they should use it to basically just make sure there isn't an action. You know, there should be no 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 opportunity for an action. There should be no excuses, and just campaign and and push for. Uh, my litmus test would be like. If you have to go on the news and make a case to the American people for the thing you're pushing for, you should be able to win that fight. And anything where you win that fight, fight for it, you know. Um, and and I think they will, you know. I think they they're already sort of gearing up to work together and do that. So that's a it's an exciting place to be in. I think um, I do think this is going to be one of the defining presidential terms, if not the defining presidential term of like the next several decades in America. Um, and so a lot's riding on this. Uh, the Democrats have to succeed. They have to execute. It's not going to be enough just to pass some bills. They have to actually get stuff done. Um, you know, we're not in the best position we could be in, but I think we have enough that, that they could do it. Um, it's sort of like the the last minute, the last quarter of the of the game, and um, we're all w- waiting for the shot to go up. Well, I, I share your cautious optimism. I, on the way outside of the COVID crisis and, and countering the climate crisis and an opportunity to help transition people through a lot of disruption in their lives in in a way that is fair and and does justice to ideas of equality and and i think there's a lot of opportunity for us to work together and i i look forward to that that level of cooperation and i look forward to continuing the conversation beyond this podcast so i appreciate you joining me for this and uh let's stay in touch yeah likewise likewise i'm excited for what everything you guys are working on so excited to be on thanks nate
Thanks for joining me as always here at Uncommons. Remember to subscribe and leave a positive review and all that. I, I really appreciate Shoycat's time and advocacy. And I also want to let you know I'll be joining him on his podcast, Building the Dream. So do look out for that as well. Otherwise, until next time.